They were learning today in their Sunday school class about Samson, who was one of my favorite Bible characters when I first came back to the Lord. I had long hair down past my shoulders when God got my attention in college, and I didn't know what to read in the Bible, and so see you later. Bye, Ranger. Uh, so I didn't know what to read, but I remember that Samson had dreadlocks, and I thought that was always pretty cool. So I went and read Samson and realized that if God could use a man like Samson, I was fair game. And uh, so take that for what it's worth. It wasn't long after that, probably just a couple of months, that I made a trip to a Benedictine monastery in North Alabama. Um, I had come back to Christ and was zealous for ministry, had responded to his call, and briefly flirted with the idea of becoming a monk. And uh, <laughs> I, it's true. And I can tell you the full story at another time, but I'm thankful that that did not work out. And I have a family now, and I get to be a Southern Baptist pastor to all you people. Um, but I'd be lying to you if I didn't also admit that there are times when the monastic life still holds a certain appeal. Uh, pulled up to the Benedictine Monastery in Coleman and went up to a gardener and was trying to figure out where I was supposed to check in to find my room. And I, I literally tapped this guy on the shoulder and said, excuse me, sir, can you show me where our, my room is? And he turned around and it was one of the brothers, his brother Francis. And on the monastic timeline, things happen differently. They don't count the hours and minutes. They regulate their day by set times of prayer. There's no internet in the monastery, and so there's no social media to distract you, no news sites to doom scroll and uh, read about the goings-on in the world. There's no radio playing monotonous tunes over and over and over or talking heads who drown out what God might be trying to say to you. I mean, the monastic life is idyllic. Maybe your speed is not, you know, cloistered monastery, and I only lasted one night. Okay, I'll be honest. And, but maybe it's a compound in Idaho, or a cabin in the mountains, or a cabana on a beach. Don't you just wish sometimes you could detach from everything? Just get away from it all. Shut out the brokenness in the world. Find your place of escape. Just be you and God. That's, for me, the monastic ideal. And I don't know how well they maintain that day by day, but... If it was possible to get into that, I think I might would take it. I think as we go forward as a church, the church in the world, we're going to be tempted to retreat more and more. The Bible tells us that we are strangers and exiles on the earth. But from my vantage point, it seems like we're getting stranger. It seems like we are more out of step with culture than we have ever been. And I think one temptation we're going to face as the people of God is the temptation to retreat, to find a place, probably not a monastery, probably not even a cabana, but maybe a church, to retreat within the walls of our church and to just focus on us and Jesus. Let the world do what it will. In here, we're safe. But this morning, I want to show you why it's impossible for the church to fulfill her calling behind her four walls, or behind a razor wire, or whatever sort of momentary 
barrier we could put up between us and the world. We can do it, but in doing so, we will lose something essential to who we are. See, the church isn't a monastery. We saw last week, it's a temple. And the people of the church aren't monks. They're priests. And this morning, I want you to see from this passage that as priests, as a royal priesthood, we have been called into the light of God's presence. But we've also been sent out to declare His praise to the world. And we need to think long and hard about what that means. It's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2. hope you caught it when Raymond was reading it. Um, did an excellent job reading that and drawing out the emphasis on the passage. But if you missed it, look with me again at 1 Peter 2.9. Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, if you were here last week, you noticed this is the same passage we looked at last week, and we kicked off this series on a future church. What does the church in the future need to know? What do you and I need to know as we face the future together? And if you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and listen to what it means that we are God's temple built on the foundation of Christ to glorify Him. We just zoomed in on that concept and applied it to our life together. Today, I want to do something similar. I want to zoom in on what it means that we are a royal priesthood. You see, this passage is one of the clearest and most explicit places in all the New Testament for filling out our doctrine of the church. Peter defines our identity and he names our purpose. Who are we and what are we called to do? And I think this is an essential thing for us to see, that we are royal priests. Now, if you're like me, you didn't grow up in a tradition of monks and priests. You grew up a brother, pastor, uh, deacons. That was your context. And if I'm honest, I don't really have the personal firsthand experience to relate to this concept of priesthood like I wish I did. I, I wish that these words sort of filled up in my mind or drew to remembrance something that I could connect with, but I don't. And so, like other foreign concepts to me in the New Testament, I looked throughout the rest of the Bible to see where this idea of a royal priesthood showed up again. And it's really pretty rare. It's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament at all. It really makes you wonder, if the preacher's up there saying this is so essential, why didn't the Bible talk about it more? Well, I think part of the problem is that Peter's first readers lived in a world that was totally different than ours. Their religious environment was punctuated, defined. Uh, everywhere you looked, there were priests. The ancient world religious system was managed and facilitated by a whole class of people, priests and priestesses, who managed big elaborate temples and small roadside shrines. Faithful worshipers of all sorts of stripes would show up at those places, bringing an offering or a sacrifice, burning some incense, and the priest would oversee the whole ritual and then assure them that whichever God they were praying to heard their prayer and would show them favor. It didn't matter where you were. Europe, Asia, Africa. Everywhere you went, you found priests. And when we think about ancient Israel, they were no different. 
So if we want to understand what it means that we're a royal priesthood, we first have to understand the Old Testament context for the priesthood. And ancient Israel was a kingdom with priests. They had their own group of clerics who oversaw their religious life. When God covenanted with his people, he gave them a whole book, one that we like to skip over, called Leviticus, which stipulated all the sorts of rules and regulations for how they could maintain a close relationship with him. In doing so, he established two institutions. One was the tabernacle, and later the temple. And the second was the priesthood. And if the people wanted to draw near to God, they had to come to him through the priests at the temple. That's just the way it worked. These priests were special men, set apart by God. They all descended from one man, a man named Levi, who was the son of Jacob. And even more specifically than that, if they were going to go inside the tabernacle and actually minister before the Lord, they had to find their ancestry all the way back to Aaron, the first high priest. These men were responsible for maintaining God's dwelling place, making sure that nothing unholy or unclean entered in. And they were responsible for speaking God's truth to his people. God put it like this in Exodus 29, that they would come into his presence to minister in the sanctuary. They carried out their official priestly responsibilities and duties in the presence of God. The Hebrew way it speaks about that is before his face. So they're right up close and personal with God, carrying out their duties. Those duties included the dramatic things of accepting sacrificial offerings from the people, placing their hand on it, and transferring the guilt of sin to it, slaughtering it, and burning it on the altar. It also included things like burning daily incense in God's presence as a symbol of the prayers of his people, exchanging the, the weekly showbread that had to be changed out. And on one day of the year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle God's throne on earth with the blood of a bull. They ministered in his presence. It's amazing. You, you go in there and dig into some of the stipulations for the things they wore. Bells on their tassels so that when they were behind the curtain and out of the side of the people... They could be sure they were still there and walking around. They could hear the bells jingling. It's a dangerous thing they got to do, but what a privilege to enter the presence of God. When they came out from behind the curtain, they didn't come empty-handed, but they came to assure God's people of their forgiveness and of peace with Him, reconciliation and blessing. God even gave them a special blessing to say, the Lord bless you, and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. In other words, the priests were mediators between God's people and God. They were the go-betweens, the bridge. If you wanted to meet with God, you had to go through the priests. And if you went through the process and did what God required, they could come back and tell you that your sins had been forgiven and God's blessing was upon you and your household. They had a kingdom with priests. But the Old Testament context goes beyond that because they didn't just have priests. They were a kingdom of priests. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, and he's quoting from Exodus chapter 19. You want to turn over there with me? I'm going to read eight verses of it. They're beautiful. I mean... 
What's happened to this point in the story of God's relationship with his people is nothing short of miraculous and dramatic. He has released them from their slavery in Egypt through ten plagues, and he's brought them out into the wilderness through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. He's called Moses up to the top, and he's about to lay out all the stipulations for the covenant that's going to regulate their life together. It's the constitution for their nation. And so there Moses is, before God, receiving the words that he's supposed to go and relay to the people. Moses tells us it happened like this, In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And when they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God. And the Lord called out to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came, and he called the elders of the people. And he set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In this dialogue between God and the people, him speaking, them responding, he defines their identity and purpose who they are, what they're called to do. He says if they would obey, they would be his treasured possession. What he means is as creator of the world, all things belong to him. The whole created world, every person, owes all that they have to him. He's the creator. But as he looked over the whole world, he saw one family, And he picked them out, chose them by name, so they would be his treasured possession. The Hebrew word for treasured possession is the same word that's used in other places to talk about a king's treasure hoard. What he would take and lock behind a vault that was most precious to him. He said, if you'll obey my voice, you'll be my treasured possession. The one people I choose for myself. The crown jewel of all that I'm doing in the world. And you'll be a kingdom of priests. Their political life wasn't going to be defined by the most powerful monarch. What king could rally enough troops to put himself on the throne? Not scheming politicians trying to exert their way. Going to be priests who live obedient lives of faith. By the way, one commentator put it, Doug Stewart said, they'll be a servant nation rather than a reigning nation. I think this is beautiful. That Israel, chosen out of all the world to be God's treasured possession, had a special task. It was a task that was not that unlike what the priests were for them. And In fact, what the priests were to Israel, Israel was to the world. In God's plan, only Israel could claim to have God's presence. Just like only the priests had the privilege of entering beyond the curtain before the face of God. In God's plan, only Israel possessed God's law. 
just as the priests only had the right to pronounce the blessing on his people. In God's plan, only Israel possessed God's favor, just as the priests were chosen from among the people. It's beautiful. They were a kingdom of priests. The middleman, the bridge, the mediator between God and the world. God intended to use them so that he could bless the nations, just as he told Abraham he was going to do. You may remember this in Genesis chapter 12. God calls a man named Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he says, Abraham, go to the place I'm going to show you, and I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing, and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. Blessing. Just like the priests came out of the tent to pronounce over the people, God intended to bring about through Abraham, and he did it by giving Israel his commandments. That if they would love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, then they would set themselves up for all the world to see. They would say, who's ever seen a God that loves a people like that? Who's ever heard laws as just as Yahweh's laws? God included stipulations for how the nations could be engrafted into Israel and receive the blessing of Abraham. If only Israel would recognize it. Surely that's what the psalmist meant in Psalm 67 when he took Aaron's blessing and refracts it. He shifts it. Listen, he says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that your way may be known upon the earth, your saving power among all nations. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. If we want to understand what it means to be a royal priesthood, we have to see what God was doing in Israel in choosing them out from among the nations and giving them His law and setting them up as His treasured possession and a royal priesthood, He was intending to bring His blessing through them. But of course, their story is the sad tale of what happens when people who have been blessed like that squander it. I mean, almost immediately after Moses comes down off the mountain Chapter 20, he gets the Ten Commandments. Chapter 21, he shows back up down at the bottom of the hill. And what does he see? But the people dancing naked around a golden calf. All that the Lord says will do. But wait. And of course, after God deals with His people patiently, leading them through the wilderness for 40 years until that generation of wicked idolaters dies... They take possession of the promised land. I mean, the physical, tangible representation of God's blessing. A land they didn't work for, vineyards they didn't plant, houses they didn't build. And the people did what was right in their own eyes. Rather than pursuing holiness, they rejected God. Instead of being a blessing to the nations, they built walls. They became insular and self-absorbed. They literally prayed prayers. God, thank you that we're not the Gentiles. Thank you that we're not like these sinful, wicked people. So bad that one of the prophets God chooses to speak through gets sent to a place called Nineveh, the capital of humanity opposed to God. And when he preaches God's coming judgment and people repent, he gets mad about it. He says, I knew this was going to happen. I knew that if I came here and told these people you were going to judge them, they'd repent and you'd forgive them. I knew this. 
They were intended to be a blessing to the nations. Wasn't that the whole point? Eventually, their self-absorption gets so bad. They're focused on their own wealth and taking land from the poor and trampling on widows and orphans that eventually God says, I've had enough with you people. And he removes his glory from his temple, removing his presence from his people, and he kicks the people out of the promised land. How can you be, how can you claim to be a priest when you're no longer allowed to enter into God's presence and his blessings not upon you? And that's exactly where Israel ended up, and it's where God's people end up every time they neglect their priestly duty. When God's people neglect this identity as royal priesthood, it always ends in catastrophe. Every time. We're not made to live in a closed loop of receiving God's blessings, but never pouring out. One time when I was a kid, you electricians and engineers are going to get a kick out of this. I put together, I discovered in a moment of serendipity that 9-volt batteries stick together perfectly. You just alternate them and stick them together. And I'm telling you, the end result is not good. (laughs) But I think about that. When I think about a closed loop, a 9-volt battery is a great thing. It doesn't have the most power in the world, but it can power some things. But when it's on a closed loop, it's explosive. Y'all, we have been given so much as the people of God. The nearness of His presence. Blessings that you can't even count. Every day brings new mercies. If you tried to write out all the things you're thankful for, you'd run out of paper. But we're not blessed to just sit and soak, but to serve. We're blessed to be a blessing. And Israel lost sight of that calling, and the result was devastating. But I love that the Bible continues. And even though Israel failed in their task of being a light to the nations and the mediators and bridge from God to the world, God didn't give up on his desire to bless the nations. And he didn't even give up on his plan to bless the world through the offspring of Abraham. If you look at the Old Testament context of the priesthood, you also have to move to the Christological context, the Jesus context. The Bible says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, to redeem those who were under the law. When Jesus came, he perfectly fulfilled Israel's calling in every way. He was the perfect prophet, risen up from among the people just like Moses to speak God's truth to his people. He was the king, set to reign over God's people forever. And he's a great high priest. While Israel settled for formal obedience to the letter of the law, Jesus' heart, soul, and mind was perfectly trained on God's desire. He even told his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He lived, ate, and breathed obedience to God. His greatest joy in life, his delight was found and the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditated day and night. While Israel turned the temple into a den of robbers, he cleansed it so that the nations would have a place place to pray. My house will be called a house of prayer for the nations. And while they offered daily sacrifices to remove 
endless accrual of guilt, he laid down his life once for all to perfectly pay for the sins of all who'd ever trust in him. Because of that, the New Testament is clear. What we saw in types and shadows in the Old Testament sacrificial system and priesthood finds its clear fulfillment in Christ. He is the great high priest who's passed through the heavens, or like Mike read for us in chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who doesn't need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. This is Jesus. The one who Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 is the one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who is the bridge saying that no one can come to the Father except through me. He is the perfect high priest who enters into God's presence. Not the temple made with human hands, but the one set up by God, not to offer the bloods of goats and bulls, but to offer his own blood and to open a living way for us into the very presence of God. Because of that, those who by faith depend on his righteous life and are trusting completely in his sacrificial death have privileged access to the presence of God. The only way the author of Hebrews knows how to talk about it is confidence, boldness, to enter into God's presence like you belong there. That when Jesus died, the temple veil was torn in two and the separation between God and man was taken away. This morning, we have to remember that our high priest who passed through the heavens has given us by his blood confidence to enter into the holy place in a way that no Levitical priest ever could. He came in with bells on him so that if he died, they'd know and they could go in and get him out. But you belong there. That you can draw near to God through Him to receive mercy and grace in your time of need. That before the throne of God above, you have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name and love is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. You know, your name is graven in His hands. You know, your name's written on His heart. And you know that as long as He stands in heaven, nobody can tell you to get out. You have privileged access to God. When Satan tempts you to despair, tells you of your guilt within, look up there. See the one who made an end to all your sin. Because he died, your soul is counted free. For God is just, but he's satisfied to look on him and pardon you. That's Jesus. Have you trusted in Him? What is your confidence and boldness to receive from God any good thing? Is it the life you've lived? Is it the things you've done? The family you were born into? None of that matters. In fact, if you want to be honest about it, it's a heap of rubbish. It's a manure pile. 
Only Jesus gives you access to God and assures you of your blessing before Him. Today is the day that you should trust Him. And if you've never done that, I would love to talk with you about it. There's Anybody here would love to. Just find somebody and say, hey, that guy's going on up there about something I don't understand. Let us help you understand. And only once we see the Christological context of the priesthood can we understand what it means that the church is a royal priesthood. And finally then, we come to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a royal priesthood. When he says that, you know his people are thinking all that we've just looked at together. He knew that that was a description that God had used of his people in the Old Testament. And they believed in all their heart that the sacrificial system carried on at the temple and by priests had been done away with because Christ had died once for all. They knew that if Peter was telling them that they were a royal priesthood, it was true. He knew it didn't matter how they traced their lineage, who was their great forefather. It didn't matter what they had done or who they had been before they came to know Christ. They knew that if he said that, it meant that just as God had redeemed his people Israel out of Egypt, just as God had redeemed his people Israel out of Egypt, he had redeemed them. Only this time it wasn't through a Passover lamb, but it's through what Peter said back in chapter 1, that he had redeemed them from the feudal way of life they inherited from their forefathers through the precious blood of Christ. And if they'd been called by God out of darkness and into his marvelous light, it must have been true. There was no denying it. They were a royal priesthood. They had privileged access to God and had been set apart by him to bring his blessing to the world. That was not a question. The question was what they do about it. What would they do about it? You are this. So what? Would they abandon their task? Or would they proclaim the excellencies of him who'd called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light? Would they get insular, self-centered, self-absorbed? Would they think about, oh, how great it is that God has blessed us and just get together with potlucks and talking about all the good things they've done? Or would they let their light shine before men so they'd see their good works and they'd glorify the Father who's in heaven? Would they live as children of the light in a dark world? Would they live blameless and innocent lives without blemish in the midst of a crooked generation? Would they proclaim His excellencies despite the cost? Would they make disciples of all nations despite the cost? Will we live as royal priests? Or will we retreat behind our walls to avoid the inevitable conflict? It's coming. Who knows what shape it'll take? Your gut's right. It's easier to be in the monastery, to be in the mountains, to get away from it all and to detach. And you can do it. But in doing so, you will abandon the calling that you've been given from God. It will be impossible for us 
as the church to fulfill what God has called us to do from behind our walls. Instead, we need to recommit ourselves to living as royal priests, blessed to be a blessing, called by God into the light of His presence and sent by Him to declare His praise to the world. Let's pray.